Welcome to Coffee with Jim, engaging, impactful podcasts with healthcare leaders. Today, it's my great pleasure to have with us an incredibly accomplished U.S. service person, physician leader, Colonel Kevin K. Chung. Dr. Chong is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and Georgetown University School of Medicine. He completed his internal medicine residency at Eisenhower Army Medical Center, Augusta, Georgia, and a fellowship in critical care medicine at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He was assigned to the USAISR, where he served in the US Army Burn Center and directed research over the last 12 years. Colonel Chung holds academic appointments in the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences as Professor of Medicine and Professor of Surgery. In addition to numerous research awards, he has deployed several times in support of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. First of all, Dr. Chung, thank you for your time today and for your critically unique and important much-needed service to our country. Thank you very much, Jim, for having me on the show, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, again, it's my great pleasure, especially during these turbulent and challenging times in our recent history. Before, Kevin, we get into our leadership discussion about a leader's perspective from the hot zone, there is some sensitive military intelligence that has been leaked about you. It is (laughs) our understanding that you like to cook. (laughs) First of all, (laughs) is it true? And what are your favorite dishes to prepare? Well, I don't know where you heard that, but it is true. Uh, I I am not a trained chef or uh, by any means, but I do love to cook for my family. Uh, My favorite dish to cook are hot wings. So hot chicken wings. Uh, I have a recipe that I've refined over the last probably 25 years. Basically, it involves taking organic chicken wings and marinating them in beer and lemon. And I, I take the wings overnight in, in that marinade, dry them out after about a day or so. And then I, I fry them in canola oil, uh, salt them, really toss them in a mixture of Frank's Red Hot butter and a little sugar. Uh, comes out magnificently, at least recently. Recently, it's been, it's been delicious, and my family thinks so. I don't know about anybody else, but we like that recipe. Well, they're important critics of what you put on the table, and so you give uh, this podcast, In the Hot Zone, a whole new name. Well, you've told me that in order to continue enjoying your passion for cooking, you have to maintain your passion for exercise. Is that true? Right. I, I uh, try to run as much as possible. It's a good family activity, especially with my son, who is 13 years old and is uh, very impressionable in terms of exercise lately. And so we go out on jogs and runs as much as we can, probably two, three times a week. Anybody else in your family that you just want to mention at this point? Oh, well, I have two daughters. Uh, one is a senior in high school who is applying to college. This is time period during a senior year that's very stressful with lots of applications being submitted. And then I have a sophomore in high school who's very much into volleyball, really committed, which I'm very proud of. And so, Kevin, tell us a little bit more about yourself now if we kind of delve into our discussion about a leader's perspective from the hot zone. Tell us more about your current medical role and what's the most important aspect of that role now. So thanks, Jim. So a little bit about my time in San Antonio first, if you don't mind. I spent about 12 years in the U.S. Army Burn Center. And during that time, I had a variety of different leadership positions that were offered to me and that that I took. And it was during the time that we had multiple surges of combat casualties who came to us from getting injured uh, in combat during combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, we learned to deal with, you know, lots of casualties, learned a lot about the care of critically ill burn patients, 
uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, a bit after that, I took over as the director of research for a short time and then did that for a couple of years. So another leadership position, really taking care of 10 different research departments or divisions, I should say. And then I had an opportunity to take a position as the chief of uh, medicine in, at uh, Brook Army Medical Center. So a completely different department within the hospital, really going back to my roots as an internist. So that was very, very enjoyable, given the fact that I was back home with my people and uh, really taking care of internal medicine residents and staff. And as I was doing that job, I was offered an opportunity to apply for the chair of medicine here at Uniform Services University, which I never entertained as a possibility, to be honest with you, because I never dreamed that big. For me at that time, it was really the, the dream job, a dream that I never really even imagined. And so I immediately jumped on that opportunity. And what it involves is uh, not only am I leading a department within the University in Bethesda, which is a medical school, the military's medical school. I also have an opportunity to impact and influence and help 1,200 faculty across the military health system. And I think I feel that that is the most rewarding aspect of this position is to be able to try to help as many faculty members, fellows, and residents across multiple institutions globally within the military health system. As you may know, Jim, that the military health system is not regionally located in one state or around the city. It's multiple military hospitals around the globe. 51 hospitals of whom about 20 involve trainees, at least seven involve internal medicine residents and staff. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous job, tremendous opportunity for me to make an impact and an impression and leave a legacy. And it really is, uh, especially for me, my, my dream. Well, that's great. Thank you for giving us that background. Forgive me, I failed to, to ask you to do so. Again, just so impressive, Kevin. So you, you've touched on your dream job. You've touched on the hospital's burn unit. And if we were to turn back the clock, you got a C in leadership at West Point? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jim. I, I often tell this to folks because you don't ever, there are many experiences, things don't work out for you, but um, you should never let those things prevent you from uh, doing the things later on in your career. And it's really, really ironic that I've been fortunate to have all these leadership positions. And when I think back to military leadership back at West Point, although I enjoyed the class, for whatever reason, I was not able to get higher than a C, which is at that time, I, I thought, okay, well, maybe I won't be a leader, but that didn't turn out to be the case. I went that direction anyway. And so <laughs> here you are a leader, thankfully, and chair of medicine. So I'm going to say the C in chair, um, let's say supersedes the C from way back. And I think a message you shared with me back to today, your current medical role, taking care of people. And something else you told me from way back when to bring forward is interpersonal skills needed work and are still useful today. Is any of that accurate? Yes, I think, you know, I, I try to focus in terms of my leadership style. I'm not a rah-rah kind of person where I, it's important for me to get in front of people and be a great speaker or anything like that. I, I try my best at those things in large groups and whatnot. I prefer one-on-one -on -one interactions as much as possible. It's very challenging when you're trying to help a large group of people. I find that if you can pick and choose certain individuals, especially those who need help, bring them up, try to help them as much as possible. Uh, those who do need help sort of come out 
of the woodworks and we'll reach out to ask for assistance, especially, you know, I, I'm focused on academic productivity and, and performance within the School of Medicine and amongst the faculty across the MHS. And so I am available. I try to make myself available as much as possible to anybody who exhibits an interest furthering their career uh, from an academic standpoint, and I'll do what I can to link them up with others or help them myself. That's uh, what I try to do. I try to help people as much as possible to promote their careers and, and to ensure that they're successful. Because at the end of the day, my success is completely intertwined with their success. Uh, individual success for me, I, I don't really care about my individual success. For me, at this point in my career, although I'm still relatively young in my career, I feel like I've already accomplished beyond what I ever thought I could accomplish. So I've already checked my personal boxes in terms of academic accomplishments. I don't need any more first author papers, any more grants that are mine. I, I don't need those accolades. I, uh, I'd rather focus my efforts on other people achieving their goals. And when they're successful, I feel like I share a little bit in that success. And that brings me joy. I think if I, as long as I focus on, on that, less on myself and more on others, I feel like I, I can make a broader and bigger impact. And let's go deeper on that aspect of, of helping others. I, I'm sure that's a significant piece of what has enabled you to be successful over the years, Kevin. As you told us, you've worked in military hospitals and you've worked in civilian COVID hospitals. You've seen a lot in the hot zone, right? Military and now COVID. What has your recent work as a caregiver on a COVID ward help you appreciate firsthand in terms of the clinical seriousness of COVID and the gravity of a highly infectious pandemic? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question, Jim. I'll, I'll start with um, my first experience as a COVID provider. I'm an intensivist, as you know, a medical intensivist. When the pandemic hit our shores, everybody understood that although this is an infectious disease problem from a day-to-day -day management standpoint, especially the most severely ill COVID patients. Uh, this is an ICU problem as well, predominantly an ICU problem, given the high morbidity associated with COVID. We as a specialty had to be front and center. It's something that hit us personally because as soon as we started receiving patients, it was pretty evident how sick these patients were. They all pretty much had the same thing. My experience in the military hospitals is limited to March and April, early on in the when our census went up at Walter Reed. That was a, an experience that was very eye-opening. I was very encouraged by how all the providers really came together for a singular purpose uh, and a common mission. And this was very much, very similar to the way we rallied when in the burn unit, my, during my time at the burn unit, when we all rallied around the crisis at hand at that point, which was a lot of burn combat casualties. And so I, I saw lots of similarities between how providers rallied around that with how providers rallied and came together for the care of patients early on in pandemic uh, at Walter Reed. I also, as you, as you sort of alluded to, I also had an opportunity to work in a COVID hospital in Maryland, basically a, a small community hospital that was converted into a COVID-only hospital. Uh, it was a bit of an odd request that I had to submit to my bosses because I had to get an exemption to work there, uh, obviously. The military is trying to, you know, the policies exist to try to protect uh, military providers from exposing themselves to uh, COVID patients and getting infected themselves. And here I was trying to get an exception uh, to that policy and work 
at a COVID hospital. But I thought it was important for me to do so because our numbers after April, May at Walter Reed dropped and remains relatively low. Even now, I mean, it's starting to go up now. And so I felt the need to, as a the lead intensivist and for the military, uh, as a consultant in the Army, I was sort of the, the critical care consultant for the, the Army uh, medical department for uh, six years. I felt the need to become expert personally in the management of critically ill COVID patients. That was an important experience that I needed to have. That was just an eye-opening experience. That hospital re- reminded me so much of a combat support hospital where uh, you basically walked in. Everything was in terms of the infrastructure. It was put together from many different places in, in the state. It basically a stand-up hospital that involved providers, guest providers from all over the state, as well as nurses from all around the country uh, who came together to in a unit to work on caring for patients. And so it reminded me a lot of uh, my deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan in a combat support hospital where we face a similar situation, care of a unique patient population, and you have providers coming together from um, different parts of the United States to really take care of a common type of patient. And so that, that was really eye-opening. It was good to see that kind of setup. The, the patients, I mean, it, it's uh, so sad to have a disease that has such a high mortality. And especially in a, the higher the age, the, the higher the mortality overall, maybe down to 30%. But those that survive above the age of 70 with COVID, especially when you get admitted to the ICU, are very few. It's really sad trying to process that as a community and take family members through that dying process of their family member, oftentimes remotely. Can't even do it face-to-face. You got to do it over Zoom or FaceTime. And that's just a very tough thing to do. That must be an incredibly tough thing to do. Some call it the, the website manner. In person, I imagine it's tough enough. And then having to do it remotely by phone or Zoom, that must be really tough. There's a lot of different feelings about the platform of video teleconferencing. Thank God we have this capability at all, because otherwise we'd be doing this over the phone. It's the best thing that we, we have currently. And it's it may not be in person, but you, you do see, uh, I, I think everybody has experienced this now, a level of intimacy that exists uh, with the video teleconferencing. It's as close as you can get to a personal interaction. And so thank God we have this capability to be able to have that conversation. But it is in the back of your mind, it, it is sad that you can't do it in, in person, uh, having the family members at the bedside. Although that's changing somewhat. Uh, some some hospitals are allowing family members on a case-by-case basis. Early in the pandemic, it was really due to the concerns with regards to availability of masks and other PPE items that resulted in really stringent, uh, restrictive you know, visitation policies. But now uh, I think we've gotten to the point where most hospitals, not every hospital, but most hospitals have plenty of PPE for the family members as well. And my last uh, five days in a row, five nights in a row at hospital in, in Maryland, uh, civilian hospital, uh, not a COVID hospital, but a community hospital taking care of COVID patients. We on especially uh, for COVID patients who are on their deathbed and, and were about to pass, uh, we did make an exception to the rule and allowed family members to come to the to the unit to at least see the patients. The best we could do though was have them watch from the window. That was uh, that's heartbreaking as well. Uh, it, it's not the same as having the family member be at the bedside and hold the hands and of their family member and their loved one. So so that's that's that. Right. You touch on intimacy and you touch on 
empathy and doing the best job that one can with empathy given the situation. Uh, if you do want to take it in another direction, go ahead. I'm also reminded of a story you told me uh, last time we spoke about a patient and it needed to be admitted or intubated and you saw in his eyes something significant happened. Do you mind telling us that story? Yeah, this, this was a few months ago at one of the community hospitals, the same one that I just finished working in. And mid-50s, probably uh, early 60s patient, male who had COVID and had been on high flow, 100%, maxed out on the flow for days. We, we had been watching him closely because when you get to needing that degree of support and high levels of oxygen like that, it's only a matter of time. You, you, can, you, you only can go one or of two ways. Uh, we were hoping that he would incrementally get better and uh, avoid being intubated. We had had the discussion with him many times, uh, hey, this could be a possibility, just let us know when you get tired. And that's what generally what I advise folks uh, when I know that there's a possibility of needing more support, which in this case means mechanical ventilation, being intubated and going on mechanical ventilation. Well, I think the word is now out now with regards to mechanical ventilation and what that means. To a certain degree, I mean, there are plenty of people that survive mechanical ventilation. Uh, people have processed through the media and social media as well as uh, traditional media that going on mechanical men uh, ventilation uh, is not a good thing and that means that you're really sick and that your chances of dying are high. It was obvious to me that this, this patient had understood that and had prostate process this as such, this information. And I told him a couple of days in a row, hey, if you get tired, let me know. Well, on the third day, I look in on him and I'm at the bedside, visibly to Kipnik and using accessory muscles. And he's definitely tired. He's looking at me with the high flow going with this just look of fear uh, because he knows in his mind, he knows that this means that we're, I'm in there because I'm trying to talk to him about you know, moving on to intubation. It, it, this, this interaction was very, to me, it, it made an impression because here he was, he knows what this means, why I'm in, in his uh, room. And he's trying to convince me, despite him using accessory muscles and completely being tired, and I know, he's trying to convince me that he's fine uh, while being tachypnic and out of breath and trying to say, I'm good, doc. See, I'm taking a big, big deep breath. Look, see, my sats are, you know, doing okay. I'm okay. And he's clearly, you know, he's barely saying those words because he's so, he's so tired. It, it was just that fear of being intubated, the fear in the eyes of that patient that, that made an impression. And, you know, it's, um, you know, one of those things that you just tuck away in the back of your head and, and it's an image that, that you can't forget very easily. Well, well, thanks for walking us through that, that difficult story. Well, well take us forward, Kevin. So seeing all these things that you have seen, what messages would you like to share with the public? In fact, you know, one of a previous tweet that we talked about was, you know, you sharing information to the public. Hey, you know, I've seen it on the inside of the hot zone and I wish you could see it too, because if you, if you did, you might modify some of your behaviors. Take us forward. What public messages would you want to put out? Yeah, thanks, Jim. I think the tweet that piqued your interest, I believe was that mask mandate one. And in that tweet, I indicated that maybe instead of a mask mandate, we should have a come work or visit the COVID hospital if you don't believe in mask mandate. And so what I meant by that is I, I see the impact of these regulations that are dictating mandatory things like masks, 
you know, people are being asked or directed, hey, you must wear masks. Well, I, I think what, what's happening is that there's a significant percentage of the population who are actively rebelling against that mandate. And, you know, it makes me think about, well, what's a better way to message that? Because it's, you know, trying to force things on people and them rebelling against it. Or it's just not going, getting us anywhere. And there are plenty of people I see out and about that just refuse, flat out refuse. And it's this approach that we've taken of making something so simple as wearing a mask mandatory. And now it's become a personal freedom uh, infringement. You know, a better approach in my mind would have been figuring out a way to motivate folks to want to wear a mask. Because in, the, in their mind, they're processing, oh, I better wear a mask because I, I don't want to get sick. Or I should wear a mask because I don't want to get my mother sick or my grandmother sick. I, I wish uh, there was a way to better motivate the public on interventions like this. One of the things that I think worked against us early in the pandemic is our own restrictive visitation policy. People were not able to see what was going on inside the hospitals. And so that generated a lot of speculation and mistrust. And that worked against us to a certain degree. If plenty of people were able to see what was going on in the hospitals, I don't think we would have this problem of people thinking that the pandemic is a hoax in some areas of the country and in some people's minds. I don't think we would have had such a big problem with masks because people would have understood how infectious this thing we're dealing with is from an airborne perspective. And so all you need to do to be convinced, all we need is somebody to walk into a COVID hospital just for a day or like half of a day and walk around and see what, how everybody else is operating and see what people are doing to protect themselves and see what type of patients are in there, what condition they're in, just to understand why it's important to wear a mask. That's all we need. And just recently have I started seeing reports in the media and the news with cameras that, were, that are now allowed inside of COVID hospitals to show what's going on in these hospitals, but they're snippets. They're like two minute pieces. I'm not sure that's enough of an image uh, to, to help people understand what it truly is like to be in a hospital, COVID hospital, taking care of these patients. And so really what I meant, I just wish people can just step in the shoes of healthcare workers and, and they would understand too. Uh, it's such a simple concept, but it's hard to implement and to get out there. It sure is. And you know firsthand, and, and to your point, we know that behavior change takes time and we have to feel it on multiple levels. And continued success to you trying to get that message out to help you caregivers be safe and of course help patients be safe. Well, in beginning to wrap up today, Kevin, big question is what would you like your legacy to be? So thanks, Jim, for that question. And I'd like to go back and tell you that story again. Really, anytime somebody asks me about my own accomplishments and my own legacy, I think about this story. Let's just say there was a doctor who was very prominent, had a very, very successful 40-year academic career in a specialty. He was the prototypical academic clinician uh, where he had mentored many, many different physicians, trainees who had uh, also gone on to become very successful in, in their own right. This person had a retirement ceremony, invited people to speak on his behalf during the ceremony. Mentee after mentee, some of them very successful in their own right, got up there and talked about how this individual, this really prominent, successful physician was great father figure to them. Speaker after speaker, about half a dozen 
he was like a father figure and et cetera, et cetera. And that was very good and, and observed that and thought, wow, what a great, great person. Last, the last speaker that got up wasn't on the schedule. Uh, it was his son uh, got up to the podium, sort of to everyone's surprise because he wasn't on the agenda. And he got up there and had just this grim look on his face. And, you know, I'm not sure about the specifics about that relationship. Uh, between he and his father, but it was pretty clear when he said, congratulations, dad, all these people just revere you. And uh, you are a great father figure to uh, everyone here in this room and to a lot of people uh, in, in your field, but you are uh, a terrible father to me and basically walked off the stage. That really made an impression on me. I mean, it was very embarrassing to the person and it was just a terrible, very awkward situation. Uh, but it made me realize that uh, really success in my work and in my profession, although very important, I wanna make an impact and, and leave a mark here and there and train generations of physicians in internal medicine and critical care. I think I, I wanna try to be grounded enough to know that all those things really don't matter at the end of the day. What's most important is what your family thinks of you. And so I try to focus a lot of my attention to how I am perceived by my family more than how I'm perceived by colleagues and those that I train. They're all important, but one's more important than the other. Great messages. And now forgive me, uh, you told me about your kids earlier. Did you wanna say something about spouse or significant other? Oh, my, my wife is, uh, you know, she's, she's used to be a teacher and is now a lawyer. She's doing regulatory work and she's very much enjoying working from home and we're a great team. You know, one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that neither of us now, I mean, we used to travel a lot, at least twice a month. Uh, I'd be gone for a few days in a row, sometimes on the weekends. And now uh, we're sort of forced to have family time almost every time, every day. And so <laughs> that is one of the nicer, if there were to be a silver lining, that would be it. We just are forced to have more family time. We're, we're not taking that for granted. Well, I'm so grateful to you, Kevin. Thank you for taking us inside the hot zone. Appreciate all these perspectives. Appreciate your time and your great service to our country. Thank you so much today, Kevin. Thank you, Jim, for this uh, wonderful opportunity. Th thank you for this great discussion. I really, really enjoyed it.